Welcome to Man Up, a podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Are you ready? Man up. Yes, sir! Welcome, welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and this is Man Up, your podcast with all the encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. We're a band of brothers. We're soldiers. We're comrades in arms, and we fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, hand over hand, and mile after mile, until each of us has helped the others attain the high calling of Jesus. And today, we're joined once more by my good friend, Bubba Garner. Bubba, as you know, works with the Southside Congregation in Pasadena, Texas. He's a dear friend of mine, not just because I've known him since my youth, but because he does a good job of watching over my parents while I'm up here in Portland, Oregon. Bubba, how you doing, buddy? Good morning, Jared. Good to be back with you, and sorry that uh, you seem to be the only place on the planet right now that's got higher temperatures than Houston. <laughs> well, we caught a little bit of a break from that the last couple of days, but yeah, I think a couple of days last week we were running hotter than you guys, which is, well, that's saying something. <laughs> so I was listening the other day, as I often do, just going through sermons that I like, finding things that I can borrow and steal <laughs> to cobble together new sermons. And I thought you had a phenomenal lesson. You preached on the topic of it's not fair. That's something that I hear us saying a lot. It's not fair. And I think for men in particular, it hits us at different times and different stages. Your kids are both away at college right now. There's probably some things that you're looking around the house and you go, man, I, I just miss them. It's just not fair that we don't get more time with them. I think that when Will walks up to me and he's not below my waist anymore where I can just sort of scoop him up on one arm, it takes a little effort to pick him up. It feels like those years just flew by, and I go, it's just not fair. I don't feel like I got any time. But then there's a more caustic way where we're looking at the inequities of life, and it begins to affect our faith. What are the dangers of thinking it's not fair? Well, we view that our circumstances are different from others, and it's almost from the standpoint that we have more to bear or we have greater difficulties than people around us. And so this sermon in particular came out of some feelings I was having, to be honest with you. And it surrounded the current issue of student loan forgiveness, mm -hmm. which I know is, uh, is a hot topic. And I'm not here to uh, come down on one side or the other politically. I'm just here to confess what my thoughts and my feelings were, which led me to our, our passage for today. And my first thought was, well, that's not fair. I had to pay mine back. Mm -hmm. And I worked hard and, and month by month scrounged and, and finally got those paid off. Why should I have to pay for them when other people don't? And then the second thing I noticed I was doing was making judgments about people I didn't even know who were, who might be recipients of student loan forgiveness. Mm -hmm. and, and I was thinking things like, well, they probably shouldn't have been in college anyway. 
or they don't deserve it. So it, it led me to some things that Jesus taught, and I thought maybe others might benefit from that very same lesson. Well, what struck me about the lesson was it's something that every man could fall into, and yet it seems almost natural when we fall into it to complain about the situation. It's really kind of a myopic view of life, that we look at what's good for us and what we want, and that tends to be the way that we think the world needs to revolve when if we always got what we want, everybody else in the world would be screaming, it's not fair. And I was thinking about how the Bible prepares this us for this, and it was funny because I was thinking about the passage, and then you actually went there in your sermon. It, it was Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 11. I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the strong, nor is the bread to the wise, or wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtakes them all. One of the things that it seems like Solomon was preparing his reader to understand is is not just that bad days might come, but they're inevitable. There's going to be a time when when your talent and your ability or your drive aren't enough to overcome. How do we prepare for that day? Before we get into the parable of Jesus that you were discussing, what are some just practical things that we can do or ways of looking at the world that we need to adopt? Well, I think that's one way in which men might have a built-in advantage when you just consider the sports world. Mm -hmm. We've all been fans of teams where we were the better team on the field. We had the better statistics on paper, should have been a cakewalk, but the best team didn't win that game. Mm -hmm. And we need to to see in that uh, the the powerful illustration that there are things at play over which we don't have control. The way a ball bounces or the call of a referee or umpire, those are things that are beyond our control. And the more we try to, or the more we embrace that, I think the better mindset we'll have about life. And we need to teach that to our our children, particularly our sons when they're young, mm-hmm. that there are going to be instances where it, it's not going to be fair, and you can't expect that in life. And so, so when we see that the world around us has inequities and that overall God is just and will balance the inequities on the final day, we'll have a, a greater peace and comfort as we make our way. Isn't it, isn't it the role of the Christian to sort of embrace what isn't fair? I mean, you think about Romans 15, and Paul starts that chapter by saying, the strong ought to bear with the infirmities of the weak. But they're not my infirmities. Why should I have to bear them? That Jesus said, if somebody, somebody asks you to go a mile with them, go with them too go two miles with them. Well, it's not even fair that they could command me to go one mile with them, that their station is above mine for no reason other than right of birth. And yet Jesus and Paul seem to be saying, hey, lean into that a little bit, because that's really where your godliness shows up. When you stop complaining and you start doing, that's really when you're doing kingdom work. Is that a fair way of talking about it? I think so. And it's just another illustration that this world is not our home. And if we're trying to become permanent residents here, if we're thinking everything about this life 
is where it's at, we're going to be very disappointed. And so this helps us to look ahead. We're looking for the perfect place God has prepared where, where all these things of life will not matter anymore. Amen. So in your lesson, you use the parable that Jesus uses in Matthew 20 to to talk about the 11th hour laborers or the laborers in the vineyards. And Jesus historically was using that to talk about the kinds of attitudes that the Pharisees had in condemning him for eating with sinners and tax collectors and things like that. And some of that had even begun to creep into his own disciples, because this really sort of flows out of a question that Peter asks at the end of Matthew 19 about how much they had left behind and what kind of greatness was going to await them in the kingdom of God. And I just wonder if you would just take a moment and summarize that parable for us, if you would. Certainly. So the framework of the parable is seen in bookends. One is the last verse of chapter 19, and then the other is the last verse of the parable in 2016. And they both are where Jesus said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So throughout his ministry, Jesus had been turning the tables of conventional thinking and just completely flipping the script from those who thought they were on the outside, people like tax collectors, Gentiles, sinners, women, children. These were people who may have felt they had no value in the culture or in the kingdom, and yet Jesus was constantly in their company. They were coming to him for his teaching, and he was forgiving them and giving them new life. And so all of a sudden, these people are first in line. And those who thought they were first, the scribes, Pharisees, and the religious leaders, they were too proud to admit their sin or to confess Jesus And so they're finding themselves at the back of the line. And to illustrate this, Jesus tells this parable, which would have been familiar to his audience, of a landowner who had a vineyard and went to hire workers, day laborers, to work in his vineyard. And the Jewish timetable was from sunup to sundown, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so he went right at the dawn, and hired some people to work for him for one day for one denarius, or one day's wage. And then as the work continued, he needed more laborers. So it said he went out in the third hour, that would be 9 a.m., hired more. He went out at the sixth hour, which was noon, and the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and kept hiring workers all the way up until the 11th hour, or 5 p.m., for people just to come work one hour and finish the job. When it was time for him to pay his laborers, he started with the last. He started at the back of the line, those who had worked one hour, and he gave them a denarius, one day's wage for working one hour. Well, those who had been hired at the first saw that, and they're thinking as the line's moving up, boy, if those people who worked one hour got one denarius, imagine what we're going to get. And they get up to receive their payment, and they get the same thing. And they complain about it, to which the master says to them in verse 13, he says, I've done you no wrong. Now, the NIV says, I've not been unfair 
we agreed that you would work one day for one day's wage, one denarius, and that's what mm-hmm. you received. If I want to give these other people the same, then why should you complain that I'm being a generous and merciful landowner? And so Jesus then says, so it is, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And we should not complain, we should not think that unfair, we should rejoice that we serve a merciful, generous, and gracious master. What are some areas of life where we really stumble into that kind of complaint, that it's, it's not fair? where we really need to stop and think that, that if, I, if I've been blessed with something by God, I really need to work harder than others to put it to use for Him. I mean, that's really what we're talking about when the last are first and the first are last, is the first have the greatest opportunity to serve. And if, 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 you, want to, if you want to be, I mean, it's how many times did He teach His disciples that lesson? If you want to be something great in God's kingdom, it's not about having others serve you, it's serving them that what are some areas where we need to stop and, and remember that the last are going to be first and the first are going to be last? Well, one very broad, one very general way is just in the blessings that we receive. We might compare ourselves with others who either have better health than we do, greater finances, a bigger family, more opportunities, and so we see their success, and we wonder, well, why can't I have Mm -hmm. some of that? Why do they get all the breaks? Why do they seem to have all the, the luck in life? And here, I'm barely able to make it, and just when I get my head above water, something happens, and it's slammed back under. So, so one way we see that is in just the, the things of mm-hmm. life. But I think the second thing that we need to be careful of is even in the local church, because God does not distribute gifts equally. Yeah. We see that, for instance, in the parable of the talents. One received five, one received two, one received one. Well, if, if it were completely fair, they would all receive exactly the same. Well, God doesn't distribute gifts that way. And so we might look across the auditorium or down the pew and see someone who can do things better than we can or has more ability, more talents in certain areas, and we might complain, well, that's not fair. Why does she have that and I don't? Why does he have that? And I don't. So that's just another way we need to be careful. You know, one of the dangers of of really beginning to see those kinds of inequities, particularly, I think, within the body of Christ, but, but even just in our daily life, you see the inequity. But like you said, you also begin to make judgments. And I think sometimes those of us who who are really blessed, we judge others who don't have what we have as well. They just need to work harder, and in life would seem more fair to them. And if we're on the other side of that spectrum, we assume that there's some sort of under-the-table dealing going on. That person obviously isn't where they need to be spiritually or, or is doing something that isn't right in order to be in the position that they're in. And whether or not those judgments are accurate is inconsequential. When we dwell on the fact that life isn't fair, it quickly turns into... God isn't fair. And I think that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 10 when he he talks about that progression of idolatry 
are toward idolatry. God had led these people out of Egypt. He had done great things for them in the wilderness, and they were always grumbling. They were always complaining. It didn't matter how many times, it didn't matter how much good he gave them or how many warnings he gave them or how many times he had to, he had to bring a judgment against them. They never stopped complaining. Where's the line between seeing something is inequitable and grumbling and complaining? Well, I think being a father is a great way to help illustrate that or to appreciate that because we're going to hear that from our children. That's not <laughs> yeah. fair. We've only no. uh, we've only got one, because and Will we... still says it's not fair. <laughs> I'm like, who, who in this house has got better than you? <laughs> <laughs> and and we sometimes talk about a a parent dividing a piece of pie equally between two children, and we say, well, one of you cut it and then the other decide who gets which one so that's that's one way to make certain that it's done exactly 50 50. well that's not the way that a a father treats his children because they're different you have different personalities and children are made up differently and even when we read through the bible we see where god deals with people differently than he does with Mm -hmm. others and it's not a matter of, of, of that's not fair for God. It's that's what's right. If we believe he is a just God and deals justly with people, then we're going to trust him that if, if it seems unfair right now, God will take care of that. And if it seems unfair to us, that doesn't necessarily mean it's unjust with God. So it's just another way that we're, as Robert Turner used to say, whittling on God's end of the stick. And I think sometimes we just have to acknowledge exactly that, that God is just... Do people whittle anymore? I, I don't Sorry. know. I, I, I've tried whittling, but the stick just keeps getting smaller and doesn't turn into anything. I, I think I've got bad sticks. I, I, there's something wrong with all the sticks I've ever picked up and tried to whittle with. <laughs> Sorry, that... That that may be an outdated illustration. We mean maybe you and I can find a, a way to update that one. Hmm. I don't know what we'd go with because whittling is just such a fun word to say. I mean, I feel like we got to hang on to it, and it needs some kind of love, or else it's going to go away and start saying it's not fair. Nobody whittles anymore. <laughs> yeah, that that'll be the next episode. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> But sometimes when we think about the things that we're called to do because God is righteous and God is is just, you look at the stoning of Stephen. That's you, you say, well, that's not fair. Or you look at Paul and the life that he lived as an apostle and the things that he endured and the kinds of things that people were saying about him. He could have easily just said, that's not fair. But in our lives, there are things that are inequitable that defy our sense of justice. And I, I think about you know, the cross, the different crosses that we're called to bear as Christians, that we can't go and do all the things that the world does. We can't, we can't engage with life 
on the same terms that the world engages with the world with life. We can't, I mean, there are restrictions placed upon us in terms of our conduct and our behavior that the world just looks at it as archaic. And I think for young people in particular, it's, it's really easy to, to fall into that trap of why does everybody else get to do what I don't get to do? And maybe even big questions like marriage and divorce. That's one of the things that when you look at God's laws concerning marriage and divorce, somebody may look at the situation they're in and it's become really tough and it seems almost unworkable and it's easy to say, well, it's not fair that I have to stay into that marriage. That's really where the devil starts working on us, that that idea that God is somehow cheating us out of something or being inequitable with us rather than disciplining us to stay the course that's just and right. That, I mean, that's how he got Eve in the garden, is God is doing something unfair to you, that he's keeping something from you that would be good. So how do we address that as fathers to our sons? How do we teach them to see God not as someone who's keeping them from things that they want and it's not fair, but as keeping them away from something that's dangerous to them because he's just and he's righteous? Well, one way is we've got to get away from what the world is trying to teach. And that, to me, was illustrated in this soccer league that we found for Morgan when she was little. We were looking for something different than parents yelling at the officials and coaches cussing on the sidelines. So we found this little group called FFPS Soccer, which stands for Fun, Fair, Positive Soccer. Now the fairness was that every player played equal time and every player played every position during the game. And so their idea of fairness was everybody gets the same. And you guessed it, everybody gets a trophy <laughs> when it's over. So that, that produces in, in children this idea that I'm owed something. That just because I am, that means I deserve something. And I wonder if that's not why we've, we've gotten to this stage in our country where we are. Because of that, that mindset that is ingrained when they're young. So to teach our children, I think one of the things we can ask is, do you want God to deal with us as we deserve? Where everybody gets what they deserve. Because if, if that's our mindset, we're all in trouble. The person who says, I wish God would just stamp out all evil in the world. Well, would any of us be here the next morning if mm -hmm. that's the case? So do we want what we deserve, or do we want God to deal justly? If we believe he's righteous and just, then we're going to trust him and allow him to be God. Well, and I think that illustrates a, a brilliant point, and that is even our own judgments as to what is and what is not fair is, are corrupted by our own way of thinking and by our own bias. The long and short of it is, is God isn't fair. And he is far more generous 
and far more compassionate and far more merciful and gracious than we will ever deserve because we don't deserve any of his mercy or compassion or grace. Yeah, and think of that. If if we want what's fair, we want God to do what's fair, then Jesus does not die on the mm-hmm. cross because that was not fair. He had done nothing wrong. And maybe that's one of those thoughts that we ought to just keep in the back of our mind. You have those association triggers. When you're trying to remember something, they'll tell you, focus on something that you're going to see on your way home, and it'll remind you to stop and pick up eggs and milk and bacon at the store. So you probably need to go by the bank and take out a loan before you do that, because it's not fair. (laughs) But the... But those kinds of associations, if every time we were prepared to say, it's not fair, we thought about Jesus on the cross and the fact that he could have said, it's not fair, and not gone to the cross. That's a pretty sobering thought. But let's lean into the thought a little bit. Is life more unfair for Christians? Is there a sense where it is, or is that just our own bias? I think that goes to the second point that I made in the sermon about ingratitude. I think when we start thinking that way, then we're we're shutting our eyes to all the blessings and all of the good things that come to us by being children of God. So the to start going down a road like that, I think is to to go to a place where we we just don't appreciate or value and are thankful for the good things God has done for us and given us. Now, you mentioned that that was sort of the second point in your sermon, the other two being some of the dangers of ever looking at life is as unfair that it leads us to places of bitterness and then ingratitude, which you mentioned, and then also envy. One of the things that I've noticed is, and maybe this is sort of an encapsulation of all of those is the more that we think about life being unfair, the less we want to take our problems to God and the more we want to find solutions and other things. Because those things are always promising a, a fairness. Now, the fairness that they promise, I mean, you think about the political world, is, is evil has been done to you, so if you vote for me, then I'll go and I'll undo the evil and then do evil to the other guy. If that's politics 101 encapsulated, that's why we need to be very careful with it. But the world really plays to that idea of bitterness, ingratitude, and envy. What are the dangers of those taking root in our lives? And how do we know when they're taking root? Well, the things that I saw in the parable, they were complaining that they didn't get more than what they've got because they work during the heat of the day they work 10 hours more than they did so why didn't i get more than what they Mm -hmm. got why were they made equal to us and so the first thing it says in verse 11 of matthew 20 is that they begin to grumble dwelling on it's not fair can make somebody bitter to where All they see are their own circumstances. I once read where it was kind of like a hedgehog who curled up into a ball and all his fuzzy warm fur he kept to himself, but all the spiny he exposed to everyone else. Well, that's what bitterness is, and it it roots in and it takes over, and it makes us unpleasant 
it makes us difficult to be around. We don't we don't want to accept any responsibility. We don't take any help that's offered. And so if if we just continue to let our minds dwell on it's not fair. I don't I'm not getting what I deserved, then then we become mm-hmm. bitter and are not are no longer useful and influencers in the kingdom. You mentioned that idea of sometimes it makes us resistant to take help, whether it's help from God, help from our brethren, help from outside sources. It's a little like, I don't know, maybe this goes down with whittling, but it's a little like cutting your nose off to spite your face kind of thing. What we see is that the more embittered people become, the more distrusting they become of others, the the less likely they are to embrace the kind of help that they really need. And you see this all the time, that the one of the reasons why it gets harder to teach people the gospel is people are resistant to the kind of help that the gospel offers. They resist it because they have become, in many ways, embittered by life, embittered by circumstances, embittered by the external voices that they take in that are informing their worldview and things of that nature. A personal issue that I had was talk radio. When my drive home was filled, and I used to, Bubba knows, I used to work in Houston and preach on the, every Sunday and Wednesday, teach Bible classes, things like that, just trying to burn one candles at both ends. Well, the, when the 45 minutes between the office that I worked at and the, and the church building where I was teaching Bible class on Wednesday night was filled with, Here's why everybody else in the world that doesn't think like you is stupid. It really sort of colors your life, and it keeps you from seeing the good in others. It keeps you from from wanting good things for them. It keeps you from seeing them as someone that you could reach out to with the gospel because you have this really ugly thought in the back of your head, and that is they don't deserve it. They deserve what they get. I mean, that's a real thing, isn't it? I mean, is that my own little personal island that I was camping out on, or is that a real thing that we're seeing among our brethren and even among the world at large? No, I, I think you're right. And and what I remember during that time of you working and preaching is that you drove a BMW, and that always, <laughs> I was always envious of that. Well, it wasn't fair. <laughs> it, it was also really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I had a really good sales job at the time, and I wasted more money on that car than I than I ever needed to. Hey, now I now I drive a pickup truck that's ten years old. So I finally figured it out <laughs> in Oregon. Yeah, yeah that, I'm sure that sticks yeah. out. Well, no, actually, there's quite a few of them up here. <laughs> All right, yeah, you got to watch out for Priuses, though. Well, the thing that I thought of is. People who've been who feel like they've been taken advantage of in life that are now distrusting, when you offer them the gospel, they might be tempted to think, oh, this is just one more way in which something seems too good to be mm-hmm. true, and I'm going to commit to this and, and have the rug drug out from underneath my feet. So, so there's an instance where, where bitterness can block out the gospel the saving message, that which is designed to root it out, but it's refused just because my circumstances in life have, have made me hardened to believe that something like that would be for me. Yeah, I really think that that is a danger. 
the devil is sowing seeds of bitterness. And maybe that's even that soil that's too hard to crack in the beginning, that wayside soil it can't even get down into. Maybe bitterness contributes to that. But I really, you look at our world and you have to know the devil is always sowing bitterness. And he's sowing envy too. And and what's interesting is that both of those sort of feed into that, to the second point of your lesson, and that's ingratitude. That bitterness and envy feed into ingratitude. And to go back to the parable, I mean, you've got the guys that worked that worked nine hours or, or, or 10 hours more than the other guys. And, and they're envious of that situation, not because the, those who worked one hour were getting more, but because they had worked harder and longer. They're envious of that. They're bitter because they feel like they did more, they deserve more. And that led them to ingratitude when at the beginning of the day, they were grateful for the opportunity to go work in somebody's field. That's a good point because I've seen that even at Home Depot in the early hours of the morning where you have laborers who are in the parking lot and they're looking for work. They're looking for people who are working on something at the house and might need a a craftsman or a skilled laborer or they might be out there in their truck advertising their plumbing business and they would be more than happy for somebody to say, hey, can you come work for me today? And so what I saw in the parable in verse 14 is when these, these workers are complaining to the landowner, why, why are we only getting one denarius? And he reminds them that's what we agreed to. And he says to them, take what is yours and go. So you worked for this. That was the agreement. Take what is yours. Be thankful for what you have. And that's a problem we have is we start looking at what everyone else has and we think, why can't I have that? Why did I have to work so hard and they get all the breaks? Or why is it that my spouse or my family member passed away and they get to celebrate their 50th anniversary, or they still have their parents in their old age. And so the the challenge for us, and I'm not saying that those aren't sorrowful circumstances and, and we shouldn't be understanding and comforting with people, but my point is let's be thankful for what we do have. Be thankful that you had your spouse for so many years or your parents for so many years or whatever. Instead of complaining about what's been taken away or what you don't have, thank God and be grateful for what he's given you because he didn't have to give you anything. Amen. And one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking about that, and this is, this is an off-the-sheet question, but when you think about the root of bitterness that the Hebrew writer talks about in Hebrews chapter 12, he warns about it springing up in if you know anything about weeds, they, they don't tend to stay in one place. They grow faster than anything else you'll ever plant in your yard. Bitterness and envy and ingratitude tend to spread from person to person. That we, We've seen that in our own world over the last couple of years. That the more, the more a situation can be turned into propaganda, and it will spread like wildfire across people who are ready to believe something evil about their neighbor. This can really affect not just our ability to teach the gospel, but this can really affect our home life. That bitterness and envy and ingratitude are 
sort of the roots of the the modern accepted not not god accepted but but culturally accepted reason for divorce of irreconcilable differences we just we just had things that we couldn't work out most of that is attributed to ingratitude and envy and bitterness people demanding that it be their way rather than putting their spouse first how do we get control of this? Yeah. That's a great point. And all of these attitudes are taught. So you're not born bitter or ungrateful or envious. You're taught that. You see that. If if our children see us as fathers, as people who are always complaining or unthankful or looking at what others have instead of what's right in front of us, then they're going to be become that way. They'll feed off what we give to mm-hmm. them. And so as fathers and leaders of the home, we need to, to set the example. As, as husbands who are uh, trying to help our, our wives, we need to, to be the spiritual leader in that respect. So the way we respond is likely going to be the way our our home responds because we're we're leading them and so we need to be very careful that we don't give in to this attitude but but show the the proper response which is again is trust in God. It's a little like gravity. If nobody applies a force that will propel you upwards, you're just going to keep sinking into this. And I think that that's what we see. I thought your illustration of the children was absolutely spot on. When we model these behaviors for our children, then they're going to take them up on their own. They've got enough influences like that in the world. There's enough influences like that to make them envious and bitter and ungrateful. They don't need it from their parents. And and when it comes to our spouses, it's always easier to go down than up. And if you're not willing to apply some goodness, some godliness, if you're not willing to try to strive for an upward trajectory, you're just going to keep descending into bitterness and ingratitude and envy. There's never going to be a time when it feels natural not to complain, or it feels natural not to see that this isn't fair. If you and your spouse have had issues where you have been at, at kind of loggerheads and unable to move, and you're just against each other all the time, the first time that you come in and you say, you know what, I'm sorry, we, we've really been in a bad place, and, and it's my fault, and I want us to get it. They may be very suspicious of you when you say something like that. They may assume, well, there's an ulterior motive behind it. You just keep working through it. You, you just keep applying those principles that we see in in. 1 Corinthians 13 of love. You, you keep striving for those things, those those fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5. You keep striving for those things because eventually the upward trajectory, it very likely could have the positive influence on them that you want it to have. But if we keep feeding into it, I can promise you that the, the downward slide is inevitable. And it's just going to keep getting darker and harder, and and the animosity and the division is going to grow, and we're going to have more bitterness and more envy and less gratitude for the person that is our spouse if we don't apply something that moves us in a different direction. 
Well, just think how refreshing it is when we encounter someone who's the opposite, who, who instead of saying, oh, woe is me, but well, what am I going to do mm-hmm. about it? Or even greater, what's God going to do with this? And so as refreshing as that is, let's try to be people like that. Let's be the ones who are setting the examples so that, so that others will hopefully come out of this pit and, uh, and follow in the, the right way. As men, what are some practical things that we can do to get ourselves out of these ruts? I mean, some of it is, is not a rut that we dug for ourselves. It's just being part of this culture and it washes over us. But sometimes we're digging our own rut. What are some things we can do as men practically to get out of the rut? Well, th- this may sound like something that uh, is obvious, but I found reading the Bible and seeing instances where this very thing is happening has been helpful to me. Mm-hmm. For example, the uh, the parable of the prodigal, and I'm talking about the response of the older brother when the the younger brother came home. I mean, he stayed home. He worked. And the the younger brother went out and spent all his money, and now he's coming back, and it's going to affect my inheritance mm-hmm. again. So that that jumped off the page at me when again I thought about the the student loan forgiveness. Why am I complaining if if people are receiving mercy, or or why am I thinking I'm more deserving? Than, than others who maybe because of circumstances they couldn't control found themselves in a, buried in a hole of mm-hmm. debt. So, so just seeing those things in the scriptures to realize this is not a new problem. Right. And this is not just happening to me. This has happened over and over. And the bottom line is we serve a God who's gracious and just and because of that, we're going to be thankful for what he's given us, and we're going to trust him in things we don't understand and can't see the big picture. When you get to the point where you want to grumble and complain, that ought to be a trigger for serving. That That's, one to me, one of those practical things that we can do every day, that absolutely read, read the Bible, but then go put it in practice and make sure that you find those opportunities. I think that's one of the things that I love so much about Southside is every time Dad comes up here, he's just filled with stories, which I'm not giving him back, by the way. They, they, I'm keeping him up here forever. <laughs> They're on vacation. They'll be back home by the time this airs, but they've been on vacation up here for three weeks. I say vacation. They've been on an extended visit with Will for three weeks. <laughs> but Dad is just absolutely filled with stories of and not his own stories. Here's where I serve this person or that person. He's filled with stories of how the congregation is doing and serving and taking care of its its brethren, and and it just it makes him glad to be a shepherd for that congregation because everybody's always serving one another. And there's a lesson in that for us that when we're serving each other and when our when we're looking for opportunities to serve we are a whole lot less focused on ourselves. And that's true whether you're talking about our relationships with our brethren or our spouses or our children, that if we're busy serving them rather than thinking about how we're not being served, a lot of these questions of what's fair and not fair sort of take care of themselves pretty quickly, don't they? 
they do. And I tell you, just counting your blessings, not just singing oh, yeah. a song, but literally putting pen to paper and and thinking about all the ways in which you've been blessed and all the ways you can express thanks for those, it it puts things in perspective. And instead of dwelling on what went wrong or what you can't change. Mm-hmm. I think about Lamentation 3 where Jeremiah is is recounting all of the things that God had done to the to the people to punish them for their their wickedness and their idolatry and they made them eat dust and things like that then you're speaking figuratively there but it's still some pretty bad harsh circumstances and yet in the middle of that chapter he says I wake up every morning and I see that the mercies of God are new and that God hasn't forgotten us and in the middle of difficulty in the middle of of times when it seems like things are moving against God's people it's important for us to remember, or, or moving against us personally, it's important for us to remember that our God is bigger. He's bigger than the problem. He's mm. bigger than we are in our ability to deal with the problem. He's bigger than this other thing the devil's trying to put in front of us. He promises we'll deal with the problem when it probably created the problem to begin with, that he's bigger. And and not just coming to him asking because asking sort of makes the problem seem bigger than he is, but thanking him for what he's already done to remind ourselves, yeah, God can take care of this. He took care of all of these other things. He can take care of this. Made me think of something just really random, but I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, if God is your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. (laughs) And I I think there's a... I You're think there's right. some truth to that. Yeah, I'm right. It was really random. <laughs> but I Oh, you beat me to it. <laughs> I think there's some truth to that that if God is the co-pilot, we're in the wrong seat. That we need we need to remember how much more able and willing he is to deal with these things, but it's going to be in his time. And we've got to trust in that. I wonder if if they have both bumper stickers, one that says, God is my co-pilot, and then the other, Jesus, take the wheel. You wonder, well, who is driving this thing? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I'm leaving that in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the most unfair things that I can think of just on the surface is the statement that Jesus makes so often of take up your cross and follow me. And that at one point even saying that if any man wants to come to me, he needs to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When you talk about taking up a cross, that's a death sentence. What he's saying is there is something heavy that each of us is called to bear. None of us has ever come to Christ that we haven't had to put down something and pick up something else. I don't care how closely we grew up around the church or how much of an alien sinner we were before we came to Christ. How do we do a better job of learning not to complain about our cross? Well, as we said before, Jesus' own death on the cross was not fair. He was pronounced by the judge to be an innocent man on multiple occasions. The thief on the cross who incidentally came in at the last and said Jesus remember me when you come in your kingdom the thief on the cross realized this man has done nothing wrong 
and yet he still died. He was still executed, not for his sins, but for the sins of the world. So if we remember that, then we will more gratefully bear our own cross to follow him. And to also remember that our own salvation is not fair. We're not getting what we deserve. We deserve the punishment for sin. And God is choosing to be gracious and merciful to us that we can be laborers in his vineyard now and then ultimately serve him day and night in eternity. Amen. Well, guys, the devil is always going to be there to whisper in your ear that it's not fair. I mean, I'm I'm looking through the camera at a guy that's two years older than I am. He's got more color in his hair. He's got a wonderful speaking voice. The only thing I've got on him is a couple of inches in height. It's just not fair. But I'm glad <laughs> that my brother was here today to talk to us about how to deal with life when it isn't rolling our way. Don't give in to the negative. Don't give in to the ingratitude. Don't become envious. Just remember what God has given you and serve. Bubba, you got anything you want to say to the guys before we wrap this up? It's hard to believe we're already at the end of this. I know. I enjoyed it, Jared, and always have fun with you and and always think about the good times we had at Dry Creek Camp and, and now the good things you're doing in the Pacific Northwest. So God bless you, and hope we can be together again soon. Amen. I hope so, too. Well, guys, we had a good discussion about how to stop saying it's not fair. Now we got to go out and live it. Remember, from all of us here at Man Up, from me, all my guests, to all of you out there, I want to say, have a good day, God bless, and man up. Dismissed!